Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Hey, we're back into it. Uh, Back to the divine narrative, God's story. And for those that are new and even uh, for others, I I can't start without a little bit of review. We're not going to review the content of what we talked about, but I do want to get back to the, uh, (coughs) excuse me, kind of the common threads, if you will. What are the things that unite these stories and these characters? And we kind of landed on uh, four R's the last couple of weeks, just easy to remember. Uh, the first one being revealing that God is throughout every story. It's, it's about God revealing himself in different ways. God making himself known to people, to the world. Uh, that's, that's part of it. Another common thread is relationship, that we we have a God, the only God on the uh, on the planet uh, that pretends that you know, God is actually a personal God, that he wants a relationship. No other faith even pretends that that's a possibility. Um, so God is all about relationship. The third, maybe most important, is that God, from Genesis 2-3, all the way through the story, is about restoring us, redeeming us, getting us back into relationship, the way it all started out uh, from the beginning. And then finally, we, a couple weeks ago, we talked about a fourth R, which is response. That how much do we want to participate, enjoy being a part of God's story? Do we want to have that story be a part of our lives? And that requires our response. Uh, so that, that's kind of where we were going through. And I will say that, <coughs> excuse me, I've just got a deep cough. I'm going to get through this one, but pardon me ahead of time. Um, but in revealing himself, he started out again with general revelation that just God in creation, we can know God just by what he created. That's the first way God revealed himself. And then Genesis 11, we are introduced to uh, his personal revelation that he uh, picks out Abraham. I'm going to have a relationship with you and I'm going to reveal myself, not only to you, but I'm going to use you to reveal me to your neighbors and to the world eventually. Uh, And then we move from personal revelation to family, Um, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, that's where we kind of left off last week. And then the next two weeks, we're going to be in Moses and Exodus. And uh, that's the next revelation where God's going to form a nation. And God wants to reveal himself to a group of people, to a whole nation, and use that to reveal himself to the world. So that's the way God has gone through this process of revelation. So back to the story where we left off last week was... Joseph had redeemed his family. God had redeemed his family through Joseph. And they brought all of the brothers and their kids and extended family all down to Egypt. Not just to survive the next five years of famine, uh, but that would be their home for an extended time. Which, if you know the story, the story is God already promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that, hey, you're going to be in the land of Canaan. That's your land. So they've kind of taken a detour here. Uh, that God's going to have to work through. But (coughs) God uses detours, and uh, that's kind of where we are. So it's been uh, been a while. Uh, They have been in the choicest part of Egypt. They've been granted this great plot of land called Goshen, uh, fertile farmland, and they are thriving. They are being very fruitful, as the text says, having tons of kids and just multiplying like crazy. And now they're becoming a threat. 
the text says, a new pharaoh arose that didn't know about or didn't care about Joseph. And uh, they, they now see this nation as a threat, this growing family group. We don't know how many there are, but there's, there's a large number. Uh, well, we... Uh, <coughs> excuse me. We'll get, we'll get a hold of that one. Got it. Okay. Uh, anyway, they are thriving, and they are... Uh, uh, th- there's a couple things about this. How long were they there? How, that, that might be one thing just to tackle, just as a little side note. The text of the Bible seems to indicate two different things. Like, were they there 430 years? That's a number that some of you may recognize. Others seem to think it was about half of that. And I'm going to side with the second theory, that, uh, that they're probably in this position for about uh, 215 years, or about half of that 430 years. Well, Gary, where do you get that? Thank you for asking. Let me uh, point out two things. Again, this doesn't change God's story, but it's just to be maybe more connected to what the text tells us. Um, So they're slaves, and how long did that last? Well, Paul gives us a clue in Galatians. I know it doesn't sound like the best place to find it, but I'm going to read that to begin with, and it says this in Galatians 3. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. In this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, and dot, 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 so Paul is definitely making a reference to 430 years, but he's dating it from the time that God made his promises to Abraham. Probably that time where he told him, you're going to have a son and this, they will inherit this land. That promise was made 430 years before the law, the end of the story of uh, Israel becoming a nation. Uh, so there's clue number one. And then in the text itself, you look at Exodus 6, And it talks about the generations that followed Jacob and his family. And in particular, if you want to know where Moses and Aaron fit into the story, it says there was Levi, and the sons of Levi included Kohath. And Kohath had a son named Amram, and Amram was the father of Aaron and Moses. Well, that's only four generations, and one of them was already in Egypt to start with. So that's a, it's hard to stretch 430 years into four generations. Uh, you can even, it's hard to stretch 200 years into four generations. But if you remember the, the story when we get to it, Moses is 80 years old uh, when he delivers, when he's uh, used by God to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. So that adds some years to when he was born and how those years take place. I just throw that out there just for context. Uh, nevertheless, we find ourselves... In the story, uh, they are enslaved, and Pharaoh is nervous about this growing horde of people that he's saying, well, what if they turn on us? What if they join our enemies and fight against us? So that's why they enslave them. And then Pharaoh says, well, we've got to stop this growth. And so two plans. First plan was gets all the Israelite midwives and says, when you go to assist in a birth... I'm commanding you, if it's a boy, you must kill the baby. And if it's a girl, you can let it live. And uh, the Hebrew women didn't heed that one. They, uh, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't kill any of the offspring. And Pharaoh got a little upset, called all the midwives in, had a little conference, and said, what's the deal? And I love this response. Well, Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are so fast. 
They are strong women. They have babies so quickly. By the time we get there, that's already born and there's nothing we can do. <laughs> Yay. Good answer. But somehow that passed. They didn't do anything negative. Pharaoh just said, okay, that's not going to work. I'm now giving a decree to the whole land of Egypt. Anyone who sees a Hebrew baby boy must kill it. Uh, so that, now every baby born at that time had a target on its back. And the Egyptians were fearful of this group of people. So that's where we find the story of Moses picking up. Uh, Moses' mother gives birth to Moses. And a short time later, decides she's going to put him into a basket and cover it with pitch to make it waterproof and put it in the Nile River. <laughs> what? what kind of a plan is that? <coughs> When you think about it, it's kind of an odd plan. Uh, but it's interesting because it's one of those threads that fits into the story. We're going to cover a couple of those today. But this is a thread where, hey, there's water, and we're being delivered. We're being saved through the water. Remember that story? That could have been Noah and his ark. Another pitch-laden, uh, waterproof basket, if you will, that was put into the water and delivered people through the water. Uh, we have this story, then we also have at the end of Exodus when the nation of Israel is delivered from Egypt. They literally go through water, uh, the parting of the seas, and they are delivered through water. Uh, and so there's a nice connection. We also have our uh, tradition of baptism, which is the same symbolism. Baptism is dunking somebody underwater to say that literally dying to self and rising again to Christ. You're being delivered through water is that symbolism. Uh, so there's, just when you read and you just see a kind of a strange story, just kind of see, where have I seen that before? Where does that fit in? What's God trying to tell us here? Uh, but that's what she does. And Miriam, Moses' sister, is out there hiding in the reeds. And they probably have already figured out where they're going to do this. And they're kind of set Moses off, knowing that Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the water regularly with her handmaidens or attendants. And uh, there she is one morning sees the basket, sees that there's a Hebrew baby boy in it, and it says, it, it says that's particularly. Why does she know immediately? Well, who else is going to be in a, in a basket? But also Hebrew children are all circumcised, so that would be a, a giveaway. So there's Moses. She takes Moses, and Miriam kind of pops up out of the reeds. Says, hey, do you want me to find somebody to nurse the child for you? Oh, that'd be wonderful. Thank you. So she goes home and gets her mom. So Moses' mom is brought to Pharaoh's daughter and says, I can nurse that child for you. And so Pharaoh's daughter actually pays Moses' mom to nurse her own baby. A uh, little irony of God. And she goes home with Moses for two years until he's weaned. And then she comes back and presents Moses to Pharaoh's daughter, be raised in the house of Pharaoh. I mean, that, that in itself is pretty astounding that God would orchestrate something like that. Not just to survive, but I'm going to put you into the this is the, the greatest kingdom on earth in the greatest household in that kingdom, and you're going to be raised there. Uh, just crazy. Well, that, that is going to become the focus of what we're going to talk about today. This is a two-part Moses Exodus thing, but part one is all about identity, and if you will, identity crisis that Moses is going to deal with uh, most of his life. But it starts out, he's raised in this royal family, and he knows he's Hebrew, but that's about it. Uh, he knows he's different. He knows he comes from these other people, but he's 
been with this family since he was two years old. So he probably doesn't know or remember his own family. He doesn't know anything about the God that they are connected to. He's raised in an Egyptian household and all the gods that they have in that system. So that's where Moses is. He's conflicted. Uh, he certainly sees how he's, his life has been blessed or favored, but he also has great uh, compassion and, uh, and concern about the Hebrews who are being oppressed in slavery. So he's torn. He's got probably a lot of guilt, like, why am I here and they're there? I'm one of them, and yet I'm living in this house. That's, that's his frame of reference. And then uh, the story picks up. He's 40, uh, 40 years old. Uh, when he uh, when he has his first encounter, when it talks about him intervening for the for the Hebrews, but he's having he spent forty years trying to figure out how am I going to rectify who I really am? What's what's what is my identity? Uh, am I Hebrew? Am I Egyptian? Am I something else? Uh, so he's not quite sure where he stands. Uh, but when he's forty years old, he's out and he's amongst his people, and he sees an Egyptian slave driver beating one of the Hebrew slaves and he intervenes and actually kills the Egyptian and buries him thinking it was all done in secret that nobody saw him and the next day he's out again and he sees a couple of Hebrews fighting and he tries to intervene there and and, uh, settle them down and one of them says oh are you going to kill us like you did one of the Egyptians yesterday and Moses kind of freaks out and thinks oh my gosh I'm I'm now known for what I did. And he finds out at the same time that Pharaoh now knows about it and he's seeking to kill Moses. So Moses flees. Moses Moses takes off. And he goes down to Midian. Midian is at the bottom of Sinai Peninsula. It's quite a little hike. Uh, But there again, if if you've been here the last few weeks, and I think uh, a couple weeks ago we talked about Midianites. You remember them? Midianites were the ones that initially sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites to be a slave in Egypt. So he's now hanging out with the Midianites down there. And Midian, just for reference, Midian was a son of Abraham, but not by Sarah. So it's part of the extended family of Abraham, but they're not part of the covenant family. They're not, they don't practice circumcision. They are loosely related to Abraham. Um, so that's where he finds himself. Uh, and he's 40 years old. And then he has this scene where he's at this well. And he's at a well and there's a bunch of female shepherds, shepherdesses, uh, taking care of their sheep. And other shepherds come by and force them away. And Moses intercedes, has compassion, and changes the roles and uh, provides for the female shepherdesses to uh, take care of their sheep. And then they go back and tell their father... Jethro, that they were rescued today, that this stranger came and delivered us from these others that allowed us to take care of our sheep. Well, they invite Moses in, and he falls in love with Zipporah and ends up getting married to a Midianite. Well, again, does that wedding at a, or that engagement at a well story ring any bells for anybody? Because we had it a couple other times. We had Isaac, Abraham went to go get a bride for his son. Isaac sends his servant out, and he ends up being at a well. Same kind of situation. He meets this gal and, uh, and intercedes for her, and she's very gracious, and he ends up 
believing that's the one God has chosen, and so he offers her an engagement, uh, and she accepts. And then the next story, the next generation is Jacob. Jacob himself goes to find a wife in Laban's area, and similar situation, he sees Rachel tending sheep. She is so hospital, she offers to take care of his sheep as well, and he falls in love with her, and they get engaged and married. And then we have this story. Uh, And then I love how the very first time that Jesus shares the gospel is at a well. Uh, So when you see something like that, when you say, oh, where have I seen a well story before? Every other time it was about an engagement. It was about falling in love. It was about commitment to something. Uh, And sure enough, that's what's happening at the the well that Jesus had in John 4. Uh, He is sharing the good news with a Samaritan woman, a foreign woman at a well. And he's really making her an offer. He's inviting her to a relationship. And he says to her, if you just knew the gift of God and who it is that's talking to you, you would ask him and he'd give you living water. That's a proposal. That's saying, hey, I want to be related to you. I want to be in relationship with you. And this is what it takes. And she overwhelms. She runs back to the town, brings other people, and, and that's what happens. She commits herself uh, to Jesus. She essentially becomes the first evangelist in the New Testament. Um, so, there you go. Uh, I'm not going to drag that analogy too far, but we do have a well out here. And, uh, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Okay, uh, there's that. Well, he gets married, and 40 more years goes by. He's now 80 years old, and kind of think, well, Where's his state of mind? He's, he's been on the run. He has no family. He's got no country. Doesn't know who he is. And all of a sudden, God decides to show up. He's 80 years old. And we'll pick up the story there. Uh, <clears throat> Exodus 3, 1 to 4. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flocks to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Oh, wait. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, this bush that won't burn up. That's kind of strange. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. (laughs) I mean, there's ways to have your first encounter with God, but this is his first personal encounter connection to this God of his own heritage. <laughs> God, I don't know why God does what he does. Kind of a strange story. But it's also just, here's this, I don't know if it's common for bushes to burst into flames in the wilderness, but <clears throat> this one does, but it's not burning up. <laughs> I just love the, and Moses wonders why it's not burning up, so I'll go take a look. God saw that he was going to take a look. and I don't get it, other than Maybe he just wants to make sure Moses cares enough to pursue or to check out what's going on. But he calls to him from this bush, and that's his first introduction to this God. And then it goes on, Exodus 3, 5. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Well, again, how does God introduce himself? He introduces himself 
in a relational and a personal way. He says, I am the God of your father, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. Uh, he's basically given Moses his identity back and saying, I'm the same God of your father. You're part of my family. Uh, I'm the same God that's the God of your father and his father and his father. And that's the way God chooses to introduce himself uh, the first time to Moses. Well, then he goes on. Uh, hmm. Three, five, or seven, eight. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of the slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. I'll just stop right there. I think that matches where Moses' heart is, was. Moses felt the same way. Moses had compassion. He wanted to intercede. He wanted to do something to alleviate what was going on. Then he goes on. So I have come down to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the mosquito bites, the <laughs> lots of bites in there. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So again, fascinating the way God sets this up. And the first thing he says is, I have heard their cry. Sedekah uh, is the Hebrew word. It means the cry of the oppressed. And when you, when you see that, when God hears the cries of the oppressed, uh, God is going to respond. That's, that's the way God is. It's interesting because it also points to God's view of, of justice or punishment. Because the word for, in Hebrew for justice is shafat, which really means restorative justice. And it really means that God is more concerned about the oppressed than the oppressor. He's more concerned about justice is geared toward those that have been wronged. Uh, we have a justice system where it's all geared toward the oppressor. It's like we need to punish that person. We need to punish the sin. We need to punish the person. And the victim sometimes isn't even in the equation. I mean, there is some justice to both sides, but our emphasis is on the oppressor. And I just throw that out there because it's a different way. Because when we look at God of the Old Testament, we get kind of hung up on how wrathful and how judgmental God seems to be in the Old Testament. But if we understand God's purpose, like he's not here to, to punish the Egyptians primarily. He's here to free the people who are being oppressed. That's his view of justice. And that's the first thing he says uh, to Moses. And then, and then he says, and I'm sending you to be my representative to speak to Pharaoh. I mean, the, the world's number one character to free my people, Israel. I'm going to use you for that. I mean, talk about an oversell. I mean, how, how in the world does Moses take that and wonder what's going on? So he says, uh, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And notice he's getting it wrong because it's all his emphasis here is who am I, not who are you. God's trying to tell him who he is. But he responds the same way maybe we do sometimes. and think, Well, who am I to do what? Well, it's not about you. It's about God. Uh, but he says, who am I that I should go? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that as I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. And we'll find that at the end of the story when they come back to this mountain where God makes them a nation. Which, by the way, a little 
foreshadowing. It's really a wedding proposal at that mountain. <laughs> oh, food for thought. Okay, so that's what God says. I, I love the way God phrases it because <coughs> God's emphasis is, yeah, I'm going to send you, but I'm the one who's going to do it. I'm going to speak for you. You're going to be, you're just representing me. That's why you're qualified, if you will. Um, <coughs> well, God's uh, next response, or Moses' next response, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is your name? Then what shall I tell them? <coughs> kind of an interesting little phrase. Hey, what's your name that I... If these people that know you, what do I tell them your name is so that they'll know that you sent me? And it seems like a weird question. What happened, remember when Jacob was wrestling with God? And uh, God says, well, I'm not, I don't have a name, basically. He says, why did you ask for my name? Uh, and I think Moses is kind of having the same idea. Why? Because, again, Moses grew up in an Egyptian royal household. You know how many gods there are in Egypt? There's a ton of them. And they all have a name. And they all represent some part of creation, like the god of the Nile, the god of uh, the crops, the god of rain, the god of whatever, the wind. <coughs> and they're all identified with a part of creation. They're a force that makes things happen. <laughs> and God is not to be named because God is outside of all of that. God responds. God said to Moses, I am who I am. <laughs> Much different response. I am who I am. Basically, literally saying, I don't have a name because you can't name me. I'm above all of that. I'm the creator of everything. You can't put a name on that. You can't label that. I am who I am. And then he said, this is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name that you shall call me from generation to generation. So he does kind of give him a name, but it's not really a name. It's an identity. God is saying, I am who I am. I'm above all this, but I'm also very personal. I'm a God of your father and his father and his father. That's how you'll know me. I'm the personal God of everything. Um, I'm not competing with this world's gods. Uh, So that sets up that. And then, uh, then he gives Moses his assignment. And he says, uh, you're, you're now going to go to the elders and tell them what I've just revealed to you. And they're going to believe you. Uh, and then I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and he's not going to believe you. He's going to resist, but I'm going to do wonders and convince him. And eventually he'll let the Israelites go and uh, I'll deliver them out of slavery. So he's giving them a preview, give them a heads up. God doesn't always do that, but God's telling him, here's what's actually going to happen, Moses. This is what you're going to do. Here's what to expect. <laughs> and Moses, again, Exodus 4 says, well, what if they won't listen to me? Uh, what? And God says, okay, Moses, I'll give you a couple of magic tricks. You got that staff in your hand, throw it on the ground, becomes a snake. Here, pick it up. Oh, it's a staff again. That's a good one. <clears throat> here's another one. Put your hand in your cloak there and pull it out. Oh. I'm leprosy all over my hand. Here, put it back in. Gone. God sent me. I mean, it's kind of weird that God plays along, if you will, gives him signs. Okay, you need some signs that I'm God. Hey, if that doesn't work, if you need anything else, 
Just take some water out of the Nile, put it on the ground, it'll become blood, then they'll, maybe they'll believe you then. Didn't say they will, said maybe they will. <laughs> so he's giving him all of this. Okay, Moses, uh, here you go. And still, here's what Moses' response is. Exodus 4. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. (laughs) So he's already trying to disqualify himself. Again, who is he and what's he relying on? He's relying on his own. I'm not capable of this. Maybe we do that with God. Maybe God calls us to do something. And the first thing is reasons why we're not the ones he should use. I, I'm, I, haven't been a, I haven't known you long enough. I don't know enough Bible verses. I don't speak well. I don't have a good sense of humor. Or whatever. I just threw that one in there. Uh, anyway, the Lord said to him, even after all that, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight? Or makes them blind. Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. (laughs) So God's trying to just tell Moses, it's not about you. It's about me. I will do all that's necessary. Do you you not believe that maybe I'm capable? I've kind of revealed myself to you. I'm a pretty big deal. I can probably make this happen. But Moses is so focused on his in it inabilities and his uh, things that disqualify him that he doesn't see it. Uh, So he ends up with, Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. Uh, Kind of astounding. At this point, I would have thought the story would take a severe turn. Okay, I did my best. Sorry. Who's next? Who wants to step in there? But he didn't. I, I I struggle with that, frankly, a little bit. How many times can he say no to God and God still says... Here's what you're going to do. But he does. He says, well, you've got a brother, Aaron, don't you? Um, <laughs> it says in Exodus 4.14, the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. He will be glad to see you. <laughs> so he still gives in to, to Moses, but he's still telling him, you're still going to go. Uh, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you Aaron. This is the hardest sell I've ever had, Moses, I've got to tell you. But, okay, I'll give you Aaron. He'll speak for you. You'll still represent me. You've got to back up and, and think for a minute. Why did he even bother with anybody? God is perfectly capable of marching into Pharaoh's court himself in whatever way he wants to and revealing who he is and convincing. It wouldn't take much to convince Pharaoh that uh, this is me, whatever it would take, Sky riding, whatever. I mean, just use your imagination if you were God. How would you be known? Pharaoh would have no trouble believing, okay, this is, this is different. This is a God. This is the God. And he could have convinced Pharaoh, whatever it took, to let his people go. But he chooses us. He chooses Moses because God is a personal God. God desires to use us to reveal himself to the world. That's the way, that's how personal our God is. We're not a God who just does his thing and we get to watch and, and be amazed at how amazing this God is. God says, no, I'm going to use you, even with all the things that you think are, that disqualify you. So, the story goes on. <laughs> well, the last 
Next week, we'll talk about the encounter with Pharaoh and deliverance, but I want to end the story today because today is about identity and with a really weird story. Uh, end of Exodus 4. And before I read it, I just, uh, again, when you see a weird story, it doesn't seem to fit, strange, keep looking at it because the author's trying to tell us something. So this, that's the case in Exodus 4.19. I will guess some of you didn't know this little episode took place. But here it is, episode 419. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, this is just before he's about to head out, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Does that fit anywhere? Where did, where did that? Wait a minute. All of what you just told us and now you've sent him on and now you're meeting him and you're about to kill him. A little strange. Uh, And it says, But Zipporah, his wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said, Bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Well, no matter how you slice it, this is a weird story. Sorry, I just had to use that. Couldn't have resist. But what is that about? Why is God showing up to kill Moses all of a sudden? I think it's got to be something really, really important to God. And it is because, again, we talked about this. This comes back to identity. That the only thing that identifies at that time people to be in God's, be one of God's people is to have circumcision. So that identified you with, if you refused to do that, you'd be cut off. That you weren't going to be part of God's family. God's people. Uh, that was the, the thing at that time. And so whether it was Zipporah refusing to, or maybe Moses just unwilling to accept his identity as a, as a Hebrew, uh, not willing to do what God commanded Hebrews to do, uh, he, he resisted. And God's going to kill him. Zipporah obviously knew right away Oh, it's a circumcision thing. Maybe they had to have a conversation. We just didn't get to hear that. Uh, but she cuts a foreskin off and throws it at Moses' feet, and uh, God lets lets him alone. Uh, again, I think that it's in, what's critical for God is a matter of life and death is how we identify ourselves with Him. For Moses, it was it was a clear choice, a response. You've got to do this to be identified with me. Um, well, what's our lesson in this? Um, I would say a couple things. What's going on here? I would say, like Moses, we are living in a world of empire. We live in a, a world system that's counter to the kingdom of God. We get the best the world has to offer, like Moses did. And yet we also have this identity with the kingdom of God. Which, which are we going to choose? Which are we going to pledge our allegiance to? Which are we going to trust in to identify with? And that's kind of our, our identity crisis, if you will, going on the same way it was with Moses. Um, well, our identity, I'll put it this way. Uh, our identity is not what we believe. Our identity is being in relationship with God. That's the response. That's the thing that we are called to account. It's not what you believe, yes or no. 
because I'm sure Moses believed that you had to be circumcised, but eh, I didn't do it. Um, so we have this conflict of uh, how do we identify with Christ? What does that mean? And I, one of my favorite verses, life verse for a long time, Galatians 2.20, says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it means to be identified with God today, to be identified with Christ, is be in relationship, accept what he's done, commit ourselves to that life. Uh, that's what it's asking. You know, Christian or the term or the word Christian is really just a label unless we live out what we believe. What we believe is irrelevant in some ways to whether or not we choose to embrace, to trust in, to identify with what it says to do. And it's astounding that just like Moses, God chooses us to live out that commitment, that life, to reveal who he is to the world. We get to take our part in that story that God has to tell. But that's our choice. That's our choice to identify with what Christ has done. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.